Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to In for Layup, the podcast. This is episode 165 called Emma. Today's episode is presented by Belly. Belly offers modern prenatal vitamins optimized for fertility, prenatal, and post-pregnancy health. To learn more about how to optimize your fertility and pregnancy health, check out their vegan-friendly, dairy-free, non-GMO vitamins for both men and women at bellybaby.com. That's spelled B-E-L-I-B-A-B-Y.com. The best part? If you use code ALLY15, you'll get 15% off your first month of either Belly Women or Belly Men. Again, that's code ALLY15, A-L-I-1-5, for 15% off. Thanks, Belly. Before we get started, guys, I wanted to tell you that the countdown is on for our fourth Fertility Rally Live event, which is happening this Saturday, April 23rd, from 1 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So you don't have to come live. Even if you have a ticket, you have 30 days to watch all of our talks and all of our speakers, and you also get our virtual swag bag. But we would love it if you did come live this Saturday because we've got all these things. We've got a keynote talk with Dr. Ruhi Jelani, who is a fertility doctor as well as a fertility patient at Kind Body Vios. She has an incredible fertility story of her own. We have a panel called The Happy Ending We Never Expected, with guests speaking about embryo donation, surrogacy, sperm donation, and a surprise pregnancy. It's an amazing panel of badass women moderated by Candace Wool. And then we have 10 breakout sessions. So we've got egg and sperm quality. We've got infertility and exercise. We have one all about sex and intimacy, advanced testing and IVF add-ons, and so much more. So please join us. We have a happy hour at the end of the day. We have crazy giveaways all day. There's a really fun interactive chat. And we basically just want everyone to walk away feeling inspired, educated, and supported by our worst club with the best members. So check us out at Fertility Rally on Instagram. You can see the link in our bio to get tickets, or you can go to my Infertile Laugh Stories Instagram and link in bio there or in my stories. I'm going to be talking about it the rest of the week. So we hope to see you at Fertility Rally Live. Let me know if you have any questions. All right, guys. So let me tell you about my guest today, Emma K. Bell. Emma is a life coach and a mentor who focuses on mental health recovery, trauma recovery, and emotional awareness learning. And she's also a huge advocate for the infertility community. And she is an infertility warrior herself. She heads up a bipolar disorder recovery online support group, and she also created TFMR Mamas, which is a group for those who have lost their babies to termination for medical reasons. So today, Emma is going to tell us all about her own story, and it has a lot going on. So she's going to tell us about her, what she calls her very chaotic and hectic young life, being in a domestic violence relationship, living with bipolar and what happened when she went in to freeze her eggs, what she found out when she was 35. She's also going to take us up to where she is now. She's going to tell us about the devastating loss of her baby Willow and why she formed TFMR Mamas. And she is just incredible. So this is an amazing story. I want you guys to also stay to the very end because since we did this interview a handful of weeks ago, something great has happened. So she, her story has taken a turn and I want you to, I'm going to tell you at the end where she is now. She wrote me a little update and I'm going to read it at the very end of our interview. So definitely stick around for that. I want to thank Emma so much 
definitely check out her TFMR Mamas group if that is something that applies to you. And if it is, I'm so sorry that you have gone through or are going through that. And without further ado, this is Emma's infertility story. Emma, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. You are calling from Dubai, so from the future, basically. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's from 9:30 in the morning for me, and you said 6:30 for you, right? 6:30 here. So yeah, I'm in. I'm in the desert. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, well, let's get right into your story. Tell me about you growing up. Did you always want to be a mom? Um, I don't know. Really, is the answer to that? I think. I grew up, my childhood was was difficult and I left home at 15. So my life very quickly became about surviving and earning enough money to eat and yeah, just Mm -hmm. surviving. So, and life was very chaotic and I had, you know, I was sexually assaulted by my uncle and then unfortunately ended up in really unsafe circles and, um, was raped at the age of 19. So oh, my life, so my young life was very chaotic mm-hmm. and very hectic. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that that, can't, that was really on my radar because I had too much else to think about. I think. Right. Understandable. Yeah. And then the sort of family upbringing I'd had, I hadn't really had any positive ro- male role models. So I was then very adamant that I would only have a family when it was right with the right person where I could have a family environment that I felt honestly would be nothing like mine. Growing mm-hmm. up. Um, so yeah. So for me, I wasn't in a rush because I wanted to, I didn't want to rush with the wrong person. So mm-hmm. anyway, I was with someone for, you know, after my life was very chaotic and then it kind of started coming back on the rails in my early 20s. But from 15 to 21, it was very difficult and I was in a domestic violence relationship and it was just all oh. a very stressful time. So sorry to hear all that. Oh, it's just, you know what it's like when your life goes off the rails, it then goes even further and further and further off the rails until eventually you kind of come back to some kind of, well, for me anyway, some kind of normality but that Mm -hmm. took a lot of time but so then in my early 20s I then got with somebody and then I went traveling around the world split up with that guy that was just awful Mm. and um got in a long-term relationship I was with someone for seven years but then we arrived at the conclusion all of our friends were getting married and having kids and we kind of arrived at the conclusion that we didn't actually want to marry each other mm-hmm. <laughs> and we didn't want to have kids together. So we went our separate ways. We're still friends now and mm-hmm. he's friends with my now husband. But yeah, it just wasn't a lifetime relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got married. I've been married twice. I am married now, but I was married before. So this is my second marriage. Okay. And I got married and we were married for four years. But sadly, he had quite a lot of things going on that meant that our lives weren't compatible together anymore Mm -hmm. so I walked away from that marriage because I suppose underlying I've always had this desire to be with the right person love doesn't solve everything 
mm-hmm. basically. Right. <laughs> love, sadly, <laughs> love doesn't always solve everything, right? Wouldn't it be so, nice if that was the answer? Oh, yeah. Wouldn't it be? But it's yeah. not, right? Right. Often not. Right. So we went our separate ways. And then about a year or two later, I met Gareth, who I'm with now. And we've been mm-hmm. together nine years and we're married. Okay. And How did you guys meet? We met in our hometown in Brighton, just out one evening having drinks. And to be honest, I was just not in the headspace for meeting anybody. And it was summer and I thought it would be nice, you know, summer, we'll go to some festivals and have a nice time. And and then we just, I thought that he'd be in my life a little bit and we'd go to some festivals and have some fun. But actually we ended up just staying together. Okay. Then, so what was he, different about Gareth? How did you know that he was the one you wanted to be with? I really don't. I really don't. No, it just, it just sort of evolved. He got a job in Switzerland. So we did a long distance relationship between England and Switzerland for a year. Then I moved to Switzerland and we lived there for three or four years, three years, four years. And then my job brought me to Dubai. So I had to do long distance between Switzerland and Dubai for a year. Mm-hmm. And then I said, right, that's it. It's your time to move for me now. So he moved to Dubai with me. <laughs> We've okay. been here three years. It's just one of those things, you know, it's happened and here we are. Okay. Okay. So Mm. what did you guys, at what point did you guys start talking about building a family? So I had the Morena coil in and out, in and out, in and out for 19 years. Okay. 18, 19 years. Mm -hmm. Not the same one, obviously different ones, but Mm -hmm. um, so, because I always thought that periods and bleeds were completely inconvenient I thought that the women's cycle was completely inconvenient to life (laughs) this is the mindset I used to have so does the coil stop that I don't know much about that yeah the morena coil stops you bleeding oh okay um did not know that yeah not the copper one the copper one tends to make people bleed heavier I think okay I've never had one that's just what my friends say Uh uh-huh but yeah, the Morena coil. So I'd pop it in, you'd spot bleed for six months and then you'd get four to four and a half years of no bleeding. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I did this for 18 years and when it ran out, I went in, had a new one put in. Uh-huh. And then we decided in August, 2019 that I would have my coil taken out, but I had already been in Switzerland when I was 35. I went to go and get my eggs frozen because I thought well, I'm 35 we're not quite ready to have kids yet. So maybe I'll go and get some eggs frozen. Thinking I'd hop in, get some eggs frozen, Bob's your uncle, hop out. <laughs> Bob's your uncle. Yeah, you know, but I'm going to, I'm going to guess from the tone of your voice. That's not what happened, Emma. That's not what happened. Mm-hmm. No, that, that was the beginning of me finding out I had fertility problems. So it was okay. a bit of a shock. So what because- happened? What did they tell you? Well, I went in and I said, you know, I'd like to freeze some eggs, please. And they were like, right, okay, we need to do some tests first. I didn't even know what they were testing. And then they came back and said, actually, you've got diminished ovarian reserve. And normally women would have five to 10 antral follicles per ovary. And you've got a total of five between the two. I was like, oh, didn't know what it meant. How old were you at the time, Emma? 35. 35, okay. So then um, I said, well, okay, we'll just freeze some eggs. And they said, but it's probably going to take three rounds to get Mm. 10 eggs, which is what you really want to bank if you're freezing your eggs, to have a chance of doing a whole round when you're ready to at least get, you know, one or two embryos. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know what they were talking. It was like they were talking to me in Chinese. So I'm kind of like nodding. Sure, sure. 
Did you have anybody, any friends who'd frozen their eggs or gone through this before? No. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't in a space where I was trying for a family, fertility and infertility really wasn't on my radar. Mm -hmm. So I was just viewing this as a process. Um, Anyway, in Switzerland, it was $10,000 per round to freeze. Just to freeze. Wow. So it would have cost me $30,000. Well, I didn't have a spare $30,000 then <laughs> lying around to have a Does chance anyone? of freezing 10, <laughs> 10 eggs. Right. You know, I don't have a spare 30000 lying around now, but you right, know what right. I mean. You don't have like a suitcase full of cash yeah. next to your well, nightstand. You okay. So I just thought, without really understanding the enormity of what he was saying, because it was also being done in different language, so we had a language barrier going on because he was speaking mm-hmm. in uh, French, Swi- you know, parts of Switzerland are German, parts of French. So okay. he was speaking to me in broken French, broken English. I was speaking to him in broken French and broken English, <laughs> trying to understand. So I don't mm-hmm. think the severity of it was really conveyed to me. Mm-hmm. But then, so I just said, oh, do you know what? I'll wait till we're ready and what happens, happens. And that's it, skipped off out the door again. Mm-hmm. Felt a bit sort of surprised and felt a bit sort of sad to learn that I would, you know, need some help. Because his exact words were, when you go to get pregnant, you're going to need some help. So I sort of hopped out, didn't really know what to think of that, and then carried on for another few years. Mm-hmm. But what that did give me is I always had it in the back of my mind that when I'm ready, I basically just need to go to a fertility clinic straight away, mm. have my tests done again, see what my levels are, and then uh-huh. see what the plan of action is. Sure. Did you feel worried at all at this point? Like, were you nervous about things not working out in the future? Or was it just kind of no, your because, uncle? No, because, <laughs> I mean, it was a bit disappointing to hear mm. that I would need help and I wouldn't be able to do it in the way that I thought. But because I wasn't in a space where I've been trying, mm-hmm. I don't think it landed on me in the same way that it would if I had been trying for a couple of years and then I got told that for example right that would have hit hit very different right so in some ways I'm grateful for when I found out because I it didn't hit me as hard as it would have done I feel if I'd spent however long trying naturally and then had that information given to me so I kind of felt a bit empowered like okay well I know that I've got to go and take action straight away so took my coil out in August 2019, went straight to a fertility clinic. My levels were lower than they were before. Antral follicle count was still similar. But then um, she said, you know, you've got to do a three-month, 12-week kind of prep, mm-hmm. like to get you ready. So put us on some prenatals and all of this. And we got ready to do a first ovulation induction in January 2020, which is what we did. And it was a fully medicated, so I did clomid and then i did you know all the gonal f and then the trigger shot okay how did you do uh, on the drugs mm, clomid was very difficult for me uh-huh in because, what way well i i live with bipolar okay yeah so clomid for me was disastrous on my mental health mm. honestly yeah i later found out i was better on femera okay but climate for me is a, okay. is a disaster, as is Diffuston. Yeah, can we talk <laughs> about the bipolar? You don't have to if you don't want to. But yeah, sure. When were you? When did when did you get diagnosed with that? Mm, when I was thirty. Okay. So, and what does that look like for you? I know it's different with everybody, but what? How do you? How does it look like in your case? Well, now I'm very lucky that I live a mostly stable life, mm-hmm. um, but I've had 
the decade to get to know it and mm. to get to and and to learn to respect the condition that I live with mm-hmm. so that I can change my life to give me the best chance of having the most stable life. I couldn't have carried on as I was because I would have carried on getting really unwell. Okay. Okay. In a cyclical fashion um, sure. because the life that I was leading was very triggering to my mental health condition and kept leading me to being very unwell. But because I wasn't diagnosed, I didn't know what I needed to do because I didn't know if there was a problem. Mm. I just thought it was me. Okay. <laughs> but at my most unwell, you know, I I tried to take my own life. Oh I my tried gosh. to crash the car. I've done lots of things. And I've also been completely manic and been completely paranoid, thought uh-huh. people were coming to spy on me in my Uh own home thought spies were being sent to me so that was just before I got diagnosed Uh um so yeah at my most poorly it's very poorly and scary yes but that was a lot largely because I didn't know that I had anything to manage right so when you finally got the diagnosis was it a little bit of a relief at least that you were able to name you know they were like this is why this is happening and here's what we can do Mm -hmm. to help you yeah of course I mean I spent the first two or three years on antipsychotics which Mm. was awful because I was only awake for about eight hours a day Mm. and I was like a zombie I just didn't feel anything okay but they saved my life because they stopped the impulsiveness they stopped the racing thoughts they let me sleep they let me recover from the breakdown that I had had and then as I got more therapy and got more stable my drugs became less intense Mm -hmm. and that's what's happened over the years as I've learned and got more tools so when I first got poorly my only tool was meds Mm. and then as it's gone on I've learned more things I've done trauma therapy I've done all you know Mm -hmm. you know me I've been doing it and it, you build a toolkit, so therefore mm-hmm. your meds don't need to be quite as strong for me anyway. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what were the meds that they put you on, just out of curiosity? I was on quetiapin. Okay. Um, but a really strong dose. So I was just, you know, lived my life asleep. Right. Oh, wow. Wow. Do yeah. you, and again, sorry, you don't have to go into all this if you don't want to, but does it seem like that might be traced back to your traumatic upbringing or were they able to say... Why it's definitely triggered. Yeah, they, it's definitely triggered by or can be triggered by stressful life events. And in the lead up to me being very poorly, mm-hmm. I, we had I had three deaths that were quite close to me, okay. one after the other. And then huge stress with the business that I was running and a lot of stress going on in my marriage and then an almighty fallout with my father. And that was the that was the final piece. Okay. Okay. And then I I was very, very poorly after that. Okay. So how are you feeling these days, like just in general, in terms of bipolar? I mean, good. It's something I have to manage. It's something I'm, it's just always running on the side in the background. My life is mostly stable. I have periods where I'm slightly busier and slightly more tired Mm -hmm. but on the whole I manage it quite well nowadays Mm -hmm. but I have everything in place to manage it my psychiatrist my therapist trauma Mm -hmm. therapist a support group you know if I need it and I'm quite equipped to Mm -hmm. look after myself nowadays whereas I really wasn't back then it sounds like you've worked really hard just to establish that what you said toolkit of you know all Mm -hmm. the different ways to deal with it 
Mm-hmm. And that takes time. You have to get to know what works for you and what doesn't. And that involves trying a whole heap of stuff that doesn't work. <laughs> right, right. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Mm. Getting back to the fertility journey. Um, yeah. So where were you at at this point from where you were just So, yeah. So then we did the ovulation induction mm-hmm. and the first one got pregnant. We couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, fertility treatment was easy. <laughs> Right. You're like, nailed it. Yeah. Two years on, I can laugh about that now. But I was like, wow. Okay. But then I bled a week later. So we had a loss at five weeks. So then we did another ovulation induction that failed. Then the world went into lockdown because it was Mm -hmm. COVID. Yeah. And then we did another ovulation induction in May, which failed. Mm. Then I said, right, I want to do an IUI because it gives me an extra 5% chance. I'll mm-hmm. take the extra 5%. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. That failed. Then we switched doctors and clinics and we uncovered that the doctor had been doing quite a lot of stuff, not quite right. Mm. So we then did another IUI with this new clinic, new doctor and got pregnant. Okay. And okay. Couldn't, couldn't really believe it. Did the whole thing, you know, where you're on the toilet and you're checking every time, checking for blood, Yeah, you know, grabbing your boobs every five seconds so they still hurt. They go right. an hour without hurting. You're like, oh my God, that's it. It's over, you know. 100%. All yep. Oh, all of that. Yeah. So <laughs> stressful. Oh, so stressful. So yes. stressful. And it carried on progressing well. And um, we okay. got to 12 weeks and everything was, you know, we got to 12 weeks. We thought this is it. Okay. Was there a um, point, Emma, where you were able to kind of relax a little bit at least? Like, you know, 12 weeks, 12 weeks is kind of the benchmark, you know, first trimester. Mm-hmm. Did you feel yeah. okay or were you still anxiety ridden? At at 12 weeks, I think I was quite, there was a sense of relief, but then I just kept thinking in my head, because I wasn't bleeding, I kept thinking, I'm going to have a miscarriage. I'm going to have a miscarriage. That's all I kept telling myself. Mm. So every scan we went to, I kept thinking, and we were having scans every week, because I always had a bit of bleeding between six and eight weeks. So then we were in twice a week, you know, and double the progesterone and all of that. So then um, I was just paranoid. We'd go to a scan and they'd say, oh, I'm really sorry, there's no heartbeat, you know. So that didn't happen. So anyway, we went along at 12 and a half weeks and I was due to have my NT scan the next day, but my anxiety was out of control. And I said, please, can you just give me a viability scan? Because mm-hmm. I just need to know the baby's heart is beating. Mm-hmm. So she said, well, I can't do the NT scan today, but I can do the heartbeat scan. Just to give you some reassurance. I was like, okay, cool. So sat down, she did that. And as she was doing it, because she was doing it on the same machine that an NT scan would be done on, she could see a lot, even though she was just going to check the heartbeat and send me on my way. Okay. And as she started scanning the heartbeat, I could hear the baby's heartbeat and my baby was kicking her arms and legs about. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Bursting tears again, you know, it's just so relieved. And Mm -hmm. then she, her face changed and she just said, I can't not tell you what I can see. And I just, I looked over at my husband and he had his head in his hands. And I thought, what's going on here? Like, I don't understand. I can hear the heartbeat. I can see my baby on the screen, like everything really clearly. What do you, what do you mean? And then she just started saying, oh, that there's, there's quite a lot wrong with your baby. Mm. And I'm thinking wrong. What do you mean wrong? And then anyway, she went from not being able to see me to saying, 
I'm going to clear my diary. I want you back in an hour and I'm going to do the full scan for you today because we need to address this today. Oh my God. My heart just sunk thinking about how, uh, how you must have felt when she said that. What was that feeling like? Just, uh, just like someone's just gone with your head and you just kind of leave your body and you're just like looking at yourself going through this situation mm-hmm. and just complete shock really yeah. and we just walked like zombies yeah so we had an hour till she could see us so oh, that's the longest hour ever I, it, yeah um but before I left the room I said I need to know what this might mean and right. she said well we will do a proper scan and I will give you more information but I'm not sure that this baby is going to make it and I thought oh my god what did like you know, so we left anyway, went over and got a cup of tea. I can't, I can't even really remember that bit to be honest, right, came back, had the scan. And as she was going through the scan, there was a huge cystic hygroma on her head, which was almost as big as her head. So okay. Big, what is that exactly? Like, okay. A big fluid sack. Fluid sack. Okay. On the head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she had fluid all over her neck, abdomen and her chest. Mm. So she was swimming in fluid. The NT measurement at the back of her neck was six and a half, and it's supposed to be a maximum of three and a half. Mm. And yeah, so, and then there was something else going on with her stomach. And she said there was markers within the cystic hygroma that she thought would either be Turner syndrome or Pato syndrome. Mm -hmm. So she said, but we need the genetics to, to match this up. So I'd already had the NIPT test two weeks before, and I was literally just waiting on the results. Mm-hmm. So we sat down with her and we said, but, you know, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. She said, well, depending on what comes back with the genetic results, you know, in some cases, parents choose not to continue the pregnancy. Mm. So I was looking at her thinking, how can I have gone through five rounds of fertility treatment? Mm-hmm. And now you're telling me that I'm probably going to have to choose to end a pregnancy I've desperately fought to have. I just didn't, I couldn't reconcile it. Mm -hmm. And then she said, but in addition to that, your baby has a huge cystic hygroma. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that your baby's heart will be able to withstand the pressure from all the fluid. And I think that your baby's heart will give up by by the time you're 28 weeks pregnant. Oh, gosh. So I was like, right, okay. So anyway, we left with this information and we were waiting on the genetic results to come back. And uh, then two days, the next day was my husband's birthday. I did. I don't. I don't think I even wished him a happy birthday. Yeah, how could you? You're, but you've got to <laughs> um, be in shock. I mean, this is just the most devastating. But I went to work. I went really? to work the next day. Because I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. I went to right. really important meetings with lawyers and banks. Yeah. On behalf of the company I was working for. Wow. And then in between the meetings, sat in the lobby, cried, put my makeup back on, went back into a meeting. Oh so I didn't God. know what else to do. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> so definitely in shock. And then um and then the next day, so two days later, the results came back in and it was like ninety nine percent Edward syndrome. Mm-hmm. So then we went and spoke to genetic specialists and said, you know, this is the results teamed with the scan. In your opinion, what shall we do? So they told us the prognosis of children with Edward syndrome, that mm-hmm. they likely, not all of them make it to birth mm-hmm. and some are born and they die 
minutes or hours after birth or days. And 2% of babies that are born with Edwards make it past the age of one years old. Okay. Now, not all babies with Edwards make it to birth. So if you think those numbers get smaller and smaller each time, Mm -hmm. plus our baby had a cystic hygroma that they, because of the fluid, the heart would have given out. So by 28 weeks, they think. Yeah. So I was just faced with this situation where one way or another, our baby was going to die and I could wait for my baby to die inside me for another 14 weeks potentially and then have a stillbirth Uh or I could hope for a miracle that the baby would be born alive and wouldn't die during birth Uh and the baby would likely live hours or days and then I'd have to watch my baby die Uh or might get to one and die in very young years Uh but spend most of their time highly medically dependent Mm -hmm. spending most of their time in hospitals and not really even being able to come home and be at home Mm -hmm. um or we could choose to end the pregnancy so Mm. we chose to end the pregnancy so we flew back to the UK at just under 14 weeks pregnant Mm -hmm. and said goodbye to our baby Willow and yeah it was just horrendous, honestly. I'm so sorry. The, to any, my heart goes out to anyone who's had to make that mm. incredibly difficult decision. Tell me about the procedure. If you, if I mean, you don't have to get into specifics, but like when the day that you guys had to actually do it and saying goodbye and all that for you. Yeah, I mean, for us, the day, the day that my pregnancy was ended, was there was a calmness to it because I think the distress is in the finding is getting hit with the news bad news after bad news after bad news Mm -hmm. and then having to process that and then having to you know ring different places to organize ending ending your pregnancy yourself Mm -hmm. and having to phone up and say I want to have a termination when you don't want to have a termination right and then being faced with people saying really casually, oh, so you want an abortion? I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to have, no, no, <laughs> my baby is sick mm-hmm. and you're not listening to me. You know, yeah. so I had, I had a whole day of conversations like that, which were incredibly distressing. With who? I, with, with receptionists, you know, who were just so flippant in oh. how they speak. Right. Because unfortunately you, if you have a miscarriage, you get, you go down the miscarriage route and you get looked after as a pregnancy loss person. If you are in the termination for medical reasons world, you get pushed down the abortion route and people talk to you in that way. As in, oh, this is an unwanted pregnancy, we'll terminate it for you. That type of thing, attitude. Gotcha, okay. But when it's not that, it's very hard to hear, you know, when you're trying to organise medical care for yourself. Understandable, yeah. You know, so yeah, I recently interviewed somebody, Emma, um, uh, a couple, Aaron and MJ, and and Aaron. They were talking about how they had to sadly terminate for medical reasons as well, and they, mm-hmm. you know, they did. They went to an abortion clinic, and there were protesters mm-hmm. outside, mm-hmm. and they were like, 
you're, you know, harassing this poor woman, MJ. And she was like, this is the worst day of my life. And you're telling me I'm a terrible person. Like, and he just, when he went up and he went off on the, it's on YouTube, actually, Mm -hmm. he went off on these protesters and said, you have no idea what we've Mm -hmm. been through and how dare Mm -hmm. you. And it was just, it just made me, Mm -hmm. it's so hard. Well, for us, you know, that was sort of similar because I wanted to be asleep. So if you want to be awake, I would have been looked after in a hospital, but I wanted to be asleep. So therefore you then get pushed down the abortion clinic route. Mm. And then you then get into these waters of people assuming why and all of this. So Mm. anyway, in the end, I said to Gareth, I can't go into or past protesters, I can't, screaming at me, you know, how dare you kill your, but I can't, I just cannot. This is hard enough as it is. Mm -hmm. So we actually paid privately and went to, luckily, I say luckily, COVID happened and cancelled our wedding. So we got a big refund Mm. that literally came two weeks before. So we used some of that money Mm. to pay for us to fly to London and go to a private hospital where we could be looked after how we wanted to be, which was as grieving parents. Mm. So we did that and Gareth was able to be with me for the whole time. They looked after our baby's remains and sent them to the funeral directors and that went to the crematorium and then we got our ashes back and it was just we were looked after mm. as kindly and as compassionately as you could in that situation. Right. Yeah, that's good. And then yeah, the day so the day was quite calm. We walked around the park close to the hospital, watched the squirrels, didn't really know what to say to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, went to the hospital and then she came and inserted the first part of the procedure and told me that, you know, I might start cramping and bleeding. It's basically to bring on labour. Mm-hmm. And they made sure that I was pain-free, which I was grateful for. Yeah. And then um, then they took me down. And, and as I went down, obviously I wasn't, Gareth's not allowed to be with me in the anaesthetist room. And then I, that's when I just lost it. I completely lost it. Yeah. I was how, like howling. I was so upset. So sorry. I can't even explain yeah. how distressed I felt. And, um, and the nurse was amazing. And she held my hand and she said, you're a good mum. She said, and you're doing the best thing for your family and your baby. And I want you to know you're the best mum. Oh. And that's the last words that I heard before I got put to sleep. Yeah, I'm glad she said that to you. And you are, it's true. So that was, I'll never forget her words and her kindness because I definitely didn't feel like a good mum. Right, of course, yeah. Mm. I do want to talk about that a little bit more, but we should also talk about the support group that you're running and the Instagram account, which is TFMR Mamas. Tell me about that. And then we'll get back to your story a little bit more, but why did you think it was so important to start this group? It's, you know, for mamas with TFMR Angel Babies, which is a wonderful resource. Thank you. I already, what I do in my job is I mentor people in their mental health and I mentor women in trauma recovery, specifically around sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for that type of environment, but for TFMR, and I just couldn't find exactly what I was looking for. And then what happened was because I was sharing the last two rounds of fertility treatment, so the failed RUI and the RUI that worked, 
I was sharing it on my social media real time. So, of course, as we got this diagnosis, that was being shared real time too. Mm. And then what happened was, as I got an influx of people who had just been through it, some people who had been through it like 10 years ago, and some people who were just receiving diagnoses. And I was ended up spending about six to eight hours a day just replying to people who were like, oh my God, I'm just looking for anyone that understands how I feel. Mm-hmm. I'm having the most awful time. I've just been told there's something wrong with my baby, blah, 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 blah. So I was grieving. I was, you know, I just lost my baby and I was, I was thinking, I can't do this in this way because this is bigger than me mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm struggling. So I gave it a month or two, yeah, two months or something. So it was in the January, so it's about two and a half months later. And then I set up the Instagram page, TFMR Mamas, and I said to everyone on my page, anybody that's in this space, go over there because <laughs> this is where you can this is where you can get support. So I just started posting and I was posting my thoughts, my quotes, my just what was what was coming up in my head every single day. And it just grew and grew and it's grown into something I never imagined it would be. I'm sad that it's it has to exist. Right. And I'm, I'm grateful, so grateful for the community that I'm now connected with. Mm-hmm. And I run free support groups. I run weekly mentored um, support groups because a lot of the tools that I use in my other groups are transferable into this space because it's grief work and it's mm-hmm. trauma work. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is everything that's going on when you have a TFMR. So I just knew that the daily tools that I was using and teaching could really help parents in this space as well. So that's what I did. And here we are. Here we mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, and TFMR Mamas is, yeah, busy. It takes up a lot of my time now. Right. And I love doing it. I, to be honest, after losing Willow, I had very little interest in doing anything that didn't have some purpose or meaning sure sure nothing matters I was like none of this matters it's all rubbish it's all nonsense yeah right understandable well I'm so glad that you've got this group and everyone please check out TFMR Mamas on Instagram tell me how you and Gareth have honored Willow since since your loss um all different things really I mean, there's loads of little things. I've got lots of little things. I've got her ashes sitting just up there. Mm-hmm. Um, my friends have sent me little things, which is lovely. Yeah, I don't know. So someone's planted trees in her memory in, oh, in, that's the, really forest, cool. in the forest, which uh-huh. is amazing. Uh-huh. And I think Tia from our mama's really is probably the biggest thing in her memory. Right. Um, because I say, unless, you know, without her existing, it wouldn't exist. So. Right. Exactly. I'd probably say Tia from our mamas is the biggest thing that's right. been done in her name. Really. Absolutely. And how how was the immediate, you know, grief obviously is not a straight line, you know, it's and it's mm. different, looks different for everyone. How how did that look for you guys and, and how are you doing now? Yeah, I mean, grief is messy. Grief is different on everyone. Me and my husband grieve very differently. I think the key to it is not trying to make someone grieve how you grieve and not expecting someone to grieve how you grieve. And mm, however that other point. person, it really is. And, and however that person grieves is no reflection on if they care or not mm-hmm. either. It's just everyone's got to do what they've got to do. 
and you've got to let let people grieve. You've got to let people be sad. Mm-hmm. People aren't very good at that. Mm-hmm. People are terrible right. at letting people be sad. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's always like, be strong, suck it up. You know, you you don't need to, you know, move on, all that stuff. I mean, what are some things for someone who might be listening that's going through the grief process after a loss, be it, you know, termination mm-hmm. for medical reasons or otherwise, what are some tools that you can share in terms of just kind of getting by like the day to day? Cause you know, as you said, there's some days where you probably just didn't even want to get out of bed. Right. No. And I didn't, I think the idea of when will I go back to normal or when will I feel like my old self? I think that whole thing probably has to just be thrown in the bin mm. And I think what's more helpful is to understand that something massive has happened to you and you're not just grieving a one-time event. You're grieving how your life was going to look, Mm -hmm. how your life looks right now, everything you imagined it to be that it's not going to be. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to remain the same person and that's okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay that you change. It's okay that something like this changes you as a person and you know, the people around us have just got to get to know the new version and you'll soon find out who stays and who doesn't. And that's another loss, right? Because sometimes those relationships, relationships get lost along the way. But that doesn't mean that you should quieten down your truth Mm -hmm. to make other people comfortable. Mm -hmm. Grieve how you need to grieve. The biggest bit of advice I could give for a couple is if you are grieving differently, please don't try and attribute a meaning to that. Mm -hmm. So please don't, think oh well they're not they don't seem as sad as I do so they don't care as much Mm -hmm. that is so not the case we might be in a coupleship but that doesn't mean we're the same people we're completely Mm -hmm. different people and you've just got to allow that other person to be and hold that space for them whatever that is and respect how they grieve and let them do it without trying to change them fix them stop them hurry them up slow them down or any of the above so good so true so how, how else is your, how are you doing like in general? Like how's your, your day to day these days? I mean, I don't have as many griefy days, but I still have griefy days. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, grief is like you're in this storm and you can't get out of the sea. And then as it goes on, you get out of the sea and you step on the shore every once in a while. And then sometimes you get dragged back in the storm again and you get spat back out on the shore again, you know, and the ebb and flow. And different things will come up and trigger you. And I think the biggest thing you can give yourself is grace and just Mm. say, how I am right now is completely understandable given everything that's gone on. So just be super, super kind to you and don't expect yourself to be who you were before and be able to stand up and get running and be cool. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Emma. And as promised, I'm going to read verbatim the update that she sent me since we talked. So this is what she wrote to me earlier this week. She said, we were preparing for our frozen embryo transfer, which was due to happen at the end of March, first week of April. And we got a spontaneous positive pregnancy test. It turns out that we conceived on the very next ovulation after egg retrieval from our last round of IVF. 
I'm currently 13 weeks pregnant and we have had low risk NIPT and a low risk NT scan and the baby is showing to be healthy so far. Hoping that we get to bring home our first living child at the end of 2022. Weirdly, I don't think we would have got pregnant had we not just done the last round of IVF. It was our most successful round so far and the only round where we got blastocysts of which one was normal. It's also the round where we both did a 12 week prep, reduced sperm DNA frag, and I did 45 days of HGH shots as part of my protocol. It's all bonkers and we are very thankful for this unexpected chance. So that's what Emma wrote. I'm so thrilled for her. Definitely check her out, her Instagram, TFMRMamas. And I'm just amazed at, you know, what can happen on all of these wild and devastating and also wonderful journeys. So thank you guys so much for always sharing and for always listening. Thanks again and congrats to Emma and I will talk to you guys next time.